good to be with you guys. We're in Galatians. We're in the book of Galatians. We are in chapter 2. We're going to uh, cover verses 1 through 10 uh, today. Um, kind of, we're just going to leaf through the, uh, a few things in Galatians chapter 1. Uh, as you know, we went through this already. In verses 1 through 5 in chapter 1 was Paul's uh, introduction. Uh, and then he jumps right into the problem because Galatians is all about fighting for truth and fighting against non-truth, false teachers, right? That's what Galatians is all about. And so he jumps right into it in verse 6 where he says, I'm amazed, Paul writes to the churches in Galatia. He's, he's astonished, he's perplexed that they would quickly desert God who called them by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, in verse 7 says, which is really not another. But there are some false teachers who are disturbing you and want to distort or pervert the gospel of Christ. And then he says in verses 8 and 9 that even if an angel or anybody else gave you a different gospel, they are to be accursed. And then he goes in verses 11 all the way through the end of chapter 1 um, through verse 24 defending himself. And so he kind of picks up from there. Paul's continuing to defend himself and his message in Galatians chapter 2. So these false teachers, they were called Judaizers. They set out to destroy the message, the gospel message, and the messenger, right? Take down the messenger, you take down the message. And so they could not tolerate these, these Judaizers, couldn't tolerate a gospel that was not tied to Mosaic law and ritual. And so their view of salvation um, was centered in what they could self-righteously perform. That was their hang-up. Their view of salvation was centered in what they could self-righteously perform in order to earn favor from God. Not the way to go about it. Rather than in what God could do for them through Jesus Christ dying on a cross for us. So listen, church, listen. This is really important. Our journey, this thing we called Christianity, this thing we called walking in the faith, being believers in Christ, our journey is a constant journey. It's a constant journey of learning how to get the focus off of ourselves, which is what the Judaizers were doing, and getting our focus completely on the Lord. That's what our journey's about, getting the focus off of ourselves and getting our focus completely on God. That's a process, isn't it? And it's a tough process. But that's what our journey is. It's a constant journey until we breathe our last, is getting the focus off of us and completely getting our focus and our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So Galatians 2, 1 through 10. Let's read those verses together. Um, Galatians 2, starting in verse 1. Then after an interval of 14 years, Paul writes, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and I took Titus also. And it was because of a revelation that I went there. And I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentile nations and Gentile peoples. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, so a Greek Gentile, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ in order to bring us into bondage. Mm, the enemy likes to keep us in bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even a moment or an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain in you, church. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. While those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. And it's not as harsh as it sounds. What, he re- what he's really saying is they didn't add any more to the gospel message. The gospel message was already perfect. 
the one that Christ gave Paul. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised or to the Jews. Verse 8, for he who effectually worked, and that effectually worked is energeo. So he, for he, the Holy Spirit, who empowered Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised, empowered me to work within the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, and this James is not John's brother, but it's Jesus' brother. James and Cephas, which is Peter and John, who were pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, partnership, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked is that we would remember the four, the very thing I also was eager to do. So these false... um, Sorry, I lost my place. In chapter 1, Paul shows his apostleship. That's chapter 1. Paul shows that his apostleship, his calling, and his gospel, his message, came from God and not from man. That's what he shows us in chapter 1. Now in chapter 2, his apostleship and gospel are being validated by the leaders uh, in the church at uh, Jerusalem. So he's being validated by the, by the leaders in Jerusalem. As the heading in your Bibles, if you look over chapter 2, as the heading over chapter 2 indicates, Paul is referring in these verses to the Jerusalem Council of 49 A.D. Right? I think your Bibles say the Council at Jerusalem. Is that right? Most of your Bibles? So that's what Paul's referring to. There was a Jerusalem Council that took place in A.D. 49. And so Paul and Barnabas had, they had returned to Antioch um, from their first missionary journey. And they were so excited about so many Gentile people coming to faith in Christ. But the Jewish legalists were upset about this. And they came to Antioch to declare that a Gentile, listen, had to become a Jew first. Oh, you can't become a Christian. You must become a Jew first, and then you can become a Christian. Hmm. And I I fear that this lie is still being propagated today that people are interested in Christ, they're hearing about Christ, and the enemy wants to tell them they need to become something first before they become a Christian. I need to be this, I need to be that, I need to be better at this, I need to remove this out of my life. That's a lie. And I hear that so many times from people. It's like, I'd love to come to Jesus, but I need need to be better in this, and I need to do that, I need to fix this. No, you don't. Christ did all that for us. Imagine if we had to become something before coming to Christ. What would that be? Who gets to determine what that is? Jesus died on the cross in order that you and I could come to the Lord exactly as we are. Exactly as we are. At any time, under any circumstances, in any condition, we come to Him. So grateful. Turn with me to that Jerusalem Council which we find in Acts chapter 15. Acts 15, 1 through 19. That's where we're, that, we need to understand Acts 15 in order to understand Galatians 2, when Paul's going to um, talk to us in Galatians chapter 2. Go to Acts 15. This is what was going on in Jerusalem. Acts 15, starting at verse 1, we're going to go through to verse 19. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren. Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Wow. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension, like this is like they're fighting, right? 
great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this. And therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to many. And when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had been doing with them in their ministry. But some of the Pharisees who had believed stood up and and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders came together to look into the matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and that they would believe and come to faith. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Hmm. And he made no distinction between us and them. And And Paul writes about that in Galatians 5 when he says there's neither slave nor free, male nor female, Jew nor Gentile. He made no distinction, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? That's the yoke of the law, legalism. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in the same way as the Gentiles. All the people kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating all the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen, fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. Heck, it's the reason the Jewish nation was called as God's people to represent him to the nations. How they lost sight of that, I don't know. But we can lose sight sometimes of the things that are important, the responsibilities, the priorities that God has given us. Let's pray. God, we are so incredibly grateful for this book that Paul wrote to the Galatian churches. We thank you, Lord, that it is your anointed and inspired word of God and that we can look to it, Lord, for direction. So grateful. God, we pray that you would have your way with us this morning. Empower us through your Holy Spirit and through your word. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. All right, so let's go back to Galatians chapter 2. do some verses, either one at a time, and then we'll lump some together. So let's hit verse 1 first. Chapter 2, verse 1. So then after an interval of 14 years, I went up, Paul writes, to Jerusalem, and he takes Barnabas and Titus. All right? So Barnabas, some of us may know a little bit about Barnabas. He was from Jerusalem. He was a Jewish convert to Christianity. And with his um, family background, he had a priestly background, He was a person of good reputation and a person of influence in Jerusalem. And Paul, he was Paul's mentor and Paul's close friend. Now, we think very highly of Paul. Paul had a kind of a sketchy background, right? Paul wrote 13 of the 27 New Testament books. But Paul had a rough start to his Christianity. 
And Barnabas came alongside Paul. Check this out in Acts chapter 9, verse 26 and 27. When he, this is, right, Paul was killing Christians. We know this, right? So when Paul came to Jerusalem, he was trying to hang out with the disciples. And they're like, no, thank you. Right? They were afraid of him. Perhaps you're afraid of me. I apologize. Not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas, but Barnabas. Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he, Paul, had seen the Lord on the road and that he, Jesus, had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. What do we know Barnabas' name to mean? Anybody remember? Son of encouragement. His name was changed to son of encouragement, Barnabas. Imagine if, if Paul was not encouraged by Barnabas. We might have a different outcome for Paul's life, that he came alongside and empowered him through encouragement to get right with the, the church in Jerusalem, and, and just it just propelled him to a wonderful, effective ministry. The power of encouragement is so important in the church, church. The power of encouragement can change people's lives and advance God's purposes. How are you? How am I when it comes to encouragement? Do we encourage? It cannot be overestimated how important encouragement is in the church. How much time do we spend encouraging others? This is a pretty encouraging church, and for that I'm very, very grateful. How much time do we spend encouraging others? On the flip side, how much time do we spend criticizing and judging others? Good question for us, right? Effective ministry for our Lord will require His people to love to support and to encourage one another. Thank you so much for the ways that you guys encouraged me. It's just, it's amazing how encouraged I am by so many here. It's not a secret, I hope at this point, how much Pastor Dave and I love each other. If you look at our text, it's kind of like a a silly little bromance. I mean, we're just always, I don't know how else to say it, but it's true. And, And what that does for me, and I think what it does for him, we encourage each other all the time. And I have many of you that do that with me as well. The gift of encouragement and the power of encouragement is just so incredible. My girls encourage me. Like, they both said, Dad, you know, your preaching is way less horrible than it was a year ago. And I say, I say, man, I'm really encouraged by that. Thank you. When I was thinking about that joke, I, I didn't know if I should say that anybody about the church, but I thought, no, that could be too edgy. Um, yeah, anyway, that's kind of just being silly. Check out Hebrews um, chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. He says, take care. Really really look at what's happening in this verse. He says, take care, church, brothers and sisters in Christ, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away. But encourage one another. When? Day after day after day. All the time. Because what's at risk is an unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. That's what's at risk when we're not encouraging one another, that people will fall away. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Oh, we need, we need one another. We just do. For we have become partakers of Christ if, if, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. Oh, we need encouragement from one another. We just do. It's so important. 
1 Thessalonians says it this way. He says, therefore encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. You're doing it already. Keep doing it. Matter of fact, twice in 1 Thessalonians it says, excel still more. So what Paul is saying is, church at Thessalonica, you're doing a great job. Excel even more. I would say to you guys, great job in the area of encouragement. Excel still more. Amen? So that's Barnabas. And then we have this other guy in verse 1 named Titus. And Titus, you know, Paul wrote a book to Titus. We call That's one of the pastoral epistles. And then uh, Titus was a, as, as Scripture tells us here in chapter 2, he was a Greek Gentile convert. And Titus traveled with Paul on his journeys. And, sent, and he was sent to some uh, difficult churches to help them solve some of their issues as the church was being established and they were working through some stuff. So he was important for Paul as well. Verse 2 in Galatians 2. Verse 2 says, it was, because, huh, it was because of a revelation that I went to Jerusalem and I submitted to them the gospel which I preached. And I did it so in private to those who were pillars in verse 9 for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. Who wants to run in vain? I mean, I need some downtime, but as far as like my life, I don't want my life to be one of vanity, to have run life or run through life vainly. And certainly Paul doesn't want that either. Paul, as it says in the beginning of verse 2, it was because of a revelation that he went up. That's why he went. God told him to go to Jerusalem. So Paul was responding to the Lord's direction, not human direction. And what's cool about that is the Lord was out to prove that Paul was not a rogue minister. Paul's not just out there doing his own thing out of passion and enthusiasm. And so the Lord was out to prove that Paul was not a rogue minister, but that his message and his ministry aligned with the Jerusalem leaders and Jerusalem apostles. And I love how we see the Lord working for Paul. The Lord's working on Paul's behalf. The Lord loves to fight our battles for us if we will let him. Look what Exodus says. Exodus 14, 14, I think. Yeah. It says, The Lord will fight for you when? While you keep silent. On some level, God doesn't need a whole lot of our help. But what He needs us to do is to look to Him. He needs us to lean on Him. He needs us to press into Him and say, Lord, you got this. To get our eyes focused on Him. I, I try to fight way too many battles on my own. And I'm not doing really well. I never have. And you think I'd learn. It's a purging process, man. For me, it is. He says in verse 2 also about, about those, he submitted to his gospel to those who were of reputation. And, and that's just the people listed in, in verse 9. James, Jesus' brother, and Cephas, and John. And these were influential men because they ministered with Jesus during his earthly ministry. And they were key leaders in the early church. And then he says at the end of verse 2, he didn't want to run or had run in vain. And that imagery is very important to Paul about not running in vain. It shows Paul's hope that he was faithfully living and preaching the gospel. That's what it tells us about Paul. If Gentiles needed circumcision, then Paul's gospel would be discredited. And he didn't want to run in vain. 
Look at Philippians 2, 14, 15, and 16. You see, there's many uh, references to Paul not wanting to run in vain, and this is just one of them. He says, Do all things, church, without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you and I appear as lights in the world. How? By holding fast the truth. So that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. I hope you're making the connection. Let me spell it out for you. Where might you be running in vain today? Well, I don't know. How do you answer that question? Where might you be running in vain? How will you know? What determines the answer to that question? Paul recognized that a life lived according to the true gospel is what determined whether or not we're living or running in vain. If we're not living life according to the truth of the creator of the universe, then we're walking, we're living vainly. Truth is essential for not running in vain. And I learned things now in my journey with the Lord of many years, and I'm like going, wow, I'm just now learning something that I didn't do 10 years ago, didn't do 20 years ago, and I think, gosh, the things that I did vainly, the, the ways that I was running in vain years ago, I didn't know what I know now. And I'm sure many of us have that same experience. Our journey, our journey is a constant journey. Our journey in this thing called faith, this thing called Christianity, is a constant journey of getting this in here. It will never end. And that excites me. I hope it does you. It'll never end. And that's our journey. It's constantly getting truth in so that we, when we're done, whenever God calls our name, and I said, like Paul, that we didn't run in vain. I think that's important. Verse 3. He says, But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. As we know, circumcision was a, a Jewish rite from the days of Abraham. And it meant accepting and obeying the whole Jewish law. But the Jewish people had forgotten the true meaning of the ritual. It was an outward sign of what was supposed to be happening in their hearts, right? As followers of Jesus, or followers of God, and then Christ came later. But as followers of God, as God's chosen nation, that's why they were circumcised. They were, they were marked out to share the good news to other nations. But they had forgotten the true meaning. Deuteronomy 10.16 says as much. Moses writes, this is early on in Scripture. Moses says, circumcise your heart. You need to circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. And all that means is when you would have an animal, as a farmer would have an animal plow a field, they would put a, a, a yoke over the animal, but the animal stiffened its neck. They were being stubborn. They didn't want to be led by the farmer. And so we stiffen our neck because we don't want to be led by God. He's like, I need to, I need to, you need to circumcise your hearts and not stiffen your neck. So they had forgotten their calling. Look at Romans 2. Turn to Romans 2. A little bit to your left. Romans 2, verses 25 through 29. This spells it out a little bit more clearly. Some of us are stiffening our neck. And God loves us. And He'll keep pursuing us. And we'll just keep encouraging you. Verse 25 of chapter 2 of Romans. For indeed, Paul writes to the Romans, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. 
if you're willing to be led. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision, it's nothing. It's become, become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Because his heart is correct. And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, on top of that, will he not judge you, who though having the letter of the law, meaning you Jewish people, and so you have the letter of the law and circumcision, and are a transgressor of the law, that person will actually be a judge of you. For he is not a Jew or a follower of God who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But we truly follow the Lord, that he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from from God. So since Titus was a Greek, he would not have been circumcised as a child. And now he's a Gentile believer or follower of Christ, and he never submitted to circumcision. He didn't need to. He was genuinely saved. Why? Because his life was evidenced of being filled with the Holy Spirit. His life gave evidence of having the Holy Spirit, which Paul talks about in chapter 3 of Galatians. Check it out. Go back to Galatians chapter 3, verse 14. Actually, we'll start at verse 13. Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He became a curse for us because he died on a, on a cross or he hanged on a tree. Why? In order that in Christ, the blessing of Abraham, all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant, might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. That's what it means to follow Christ. Jew or Gentile, from one end of the extreme to not following Christ to the other end of the extreme of not following Christ, no matter who you are or what you've done, through faith in Christ, then God fills us with His Holy Spirit, and that's available for all of us. Jews and Gentiles are saved the same way, through faith in Jesus Christ and the promised Holy Spirit. Verses 4, 5, and 6. Hey, before we progress, I'm seeing fans. Can we maybe kick up the AC? Because I'm, I'm a little warm too. Is that possible? Some people are fanning themselves, and I'm, I'm getting roasty-toasty also. All right, verses 4, 5, and 6. Thanks, you guys. Appreciate it. Verses 4. It was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality, well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. So look at verse 4. You're going to see two key words. There's this word liberty in the middle of verse 4. And at the very end, you see this word bondage. The truth is really a matter of being in liberty or being in bondage. The truth is so important because it determines whether we're going to be in liberty or we're going to be in bondage. I don't know if you remember this, but I think... This is still happening today. Go to Numbers chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. Numbers chapter 14, towards the beginning of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Do you guys remember how long the nation of Israel was uh, in captivity in Egypt as slaves? That they were in bondage? Anybody remember? About 400 years. They were in captivity. They They were mistreating and beating as slaves. 
They were in captivity for 400 years. And then God says, I'm going to deliver you and take you to the promised land. I'm not just going to deliver you. You've got to find your way out or, you know, find your way somewhere else. I'm going to take you out of bondage and bring you to a, a land flowing with milk and honey, to a promised land. And you know that they got out of there after 400 years. And guess what happened? They wanted to go back. And we laugh because we think that's impossible. But I'm telling you, I think the same thing has hap- happens today. Because it's a journey with our Lord. And then we don't know what God's doing. We don't know how He's molding us and shaping us. He promises us great things, but we sometimes we lose focus and we lose trust. And the journey sometimes gets difficult. And so then we want to go back to what we know. It's crazy. But they did it then, and I think the same thing still happens now. Check this out. The people rebel, it says. Verse 1 of Numbers 14. Thank you for the air, you guys. I really appreciate that. Um, Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and they cried and the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel, (laughs) all means all, that's all all means, all of them grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said, "Would would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in this doggone wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land? To fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? Oh my goodness. And so they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and go back. That seems impossible to be true. But I think it's very indicative. And that's what's happening in Galatians when he's like, he's got this whole wrestling match in in, in verse 4 of liberty and bondage, liberty and bondage. We take God at his word. That's the beginnings of liberty. We don't. We're going to stay in captivity. The point is, what I want you to hear is that liberty, freedom in our Lord is a process. It's a process. And it's a process that the enemy would have us to abandon far too often and far too quickly. And perhaps some of you are sitting there right now going, yeah, I'm kind of in that thing where it's like, is this all worth it? Can I do it? Can I hang in, can I hang in there on this journey? Can I make it to the promised land? And the enemy would, would have you to know that you can't, but God would have you to know that you can by the power of His Holy Spirit. Check out these words in verse 4, these, these enemy words. The enemy's real, and we see it here in verse 4. It was because of the false, we see the word false, two words later, secretly, a couple words later, sneaky, sneaked. And then we see the word spy. So we got false and secret and sneaky and spy. That's the enemy. He's false and he's sneaky and he's spying. And, 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 and what's the other word I missed? Uh, yeah, right? What? False and yeah, secretly and sneaky and spying to bring us into bondage. He's looking for ways to keep us in that place of bondage. The enemy's real. And so the truth is what keeps us focused on what's true and what's alive from the pit of hell. In verse 5, Paul says that they did not yield for even an hour. Why? So that the truth of the gospel, the truth of the gospel would remain or would continue. Paul's primary concern was the truth of the gospel. If you take the truth of the gospel out, then the continuing doesn't take place. Right? It won't remain in you. Don't yield for even an hour. The truth of the gospel needs to remain. If you yield, then the truth of the gospel does not remain. It does not continue. Paul's, listen, Paul's primary concern, Paul's primary concern was the truth of the gospel. You, you, you probably are getting tired of hearing that in this church, right? Paul's primary concern was the truth of the gospel before the peace of the church. The truth of the gospel before the peace of the church. Let me explain. Look at James 3.17. 
James 3.17, Jesus' brother writes, but the wisdom from above is first what? Is first pure. That's the most important thing. The wisdom must first be pure. Then it's peaceable. If it's pure, then we have a chance of having peace, of being gentle, of being reasonable, of being full of mercy, and having good fruits, and being unwavering, and being without hypocrisy, if we hold to a pure word. Can I get an amen? It's that important. This this phrase of uh, of uh, truth of the gospel it refers to implications for how we live our lives for Christian living we it says in verse 5 we must not yield for even an hour which really means for even a moment we must not yield for even a moment because when we do that verse tells us the gospel will not remain in us Think about this. There are people that we may know. We may be some of them. Where we've had some pretty gnarly outcomes because we yielded for a moment. Right? If somebody OD'd recently that you might know, you know, overdosed on drugs, it's because somewhere back wherever, they yielded for a moment. They went down a path. Teen pregnancies happens, right? Because we yield for a moment. Losing our jobs because we did something we shouldn't have done because we yielded for a moment. It's so important not to yield for even a moment. And so my, that's, that's the way I would want to encourage the church and for us to encourage one another that we just hang in there and we encourage one another to not yield because when we yield, the truth does not remain in us. It's so important not to yield. The truth of the gospel ultimately finds its power in the lives of those of us who believe. It's not simply about knowing and protecting the truth. It's about how that truth transforms the very lives of those that it inhabits. Check out 1 Corinthians 8.1. Some of us know this verse as well. It says, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Like, yeah, we all know what to do. But knowledge by itself makes people arrogant. Love is what edifies. In other words, acting out our knowledge. Yes, it's good to have knowledge, but we need to put that knowledge into effect through love. The love of God's word, the love of God, our obedience to Him, our sacrifice for one another. It edifies the body of Christ when we live out the things that we know. The other thing I think is really kind of cool in verses 4, 5, and 6 is on in verse 4, you have one extreme of the spectrum. And in verse 6, you have the other. In verse 4, you have false teachers, Right? It was because of the false brethren, false believers, false teachers. And then in verse 6, you have these, these pillars. But those who are of reputation, they're the pillars that are mentioned in verse 9. So you have two extremes. Those of high reputation, those who handle God's word well, and those who are actually false teachers. And the resolve and the truth of the gospel does not change for Paul, regardless of which end of the spectrum he's conversing with or considering. You get that? What that means is, are you comfortable? Are you stewarding God's word in such a way where you can brush up against false teachers and you're fine? And you can brush up against pillars in the church who handle God's word so well and be fine. That's what God wants for us in the way that we handle his word. That we can brush up against false teachers and we're fine brush up against those who know God's word well and 
That's a, that's a goal that we should all have in how we steward God's Word. Verses 7, 8, and 9. On the contrary, Paul writes, seeing that I had been entrusted to the uncircumcised as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter, the Holy Spirit who effectually worked, I think I said that, effectually worked as energeo, he who empowered Peter also empowered me to go to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, um, James and Cephas and John, who are pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, which is partnership so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So there's three pillars mentioned here in verse 9. The first pillar is James. That's Jesus' half-brother. And he wrote the book of James, and he was the leader of the early church. And then you have Cephas, or Peter. That's the second pillar, one of the original 12 disciples and apostles. And the, the prominence of Peter in the Gospels and the book of Acts cannot be disputed. He's, often, he's, he's always listed first when, when, when the disciples are listed. And then John is the third pillar, one of the original twelve. Uh, John wrote the Gospel uh, of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and he wrote the book of Revelation. And John was part of um, Jesus' inner circle along with Peter and John's brother James, the two sons of Zebedee. What's a pillar? What's a pillar? Does anybody know what a pillar means when it's referred to in Scripture? It's a Jewish term. Listen, it's a Jewish term referring to great stewards. Jewish term referring to great stewards of God's word. I'm so thankful that our church has many, many pillars in it. And many of us are becoming stronger pillars or bigger pillars. It's a great steward of God's word. I, I hope, my hope for you is that you, whether here or if God moves you on, uh, you know, for work or whatever, wherever you go, that you would be a pillar for God's truth. Amen? Look at 1 Timothy 3.15. Incredible verse. 1 Timothy 3.15 says as much. Paul writes to Timothy in his first letter to Timothy. He says, In case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one should conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the what? The pillar and support of the truth. There's a lot of things we do. There's a lot of moving parts in this church. But our first and foremost responsibility as pastors and elders is to be a pillar of truth. It's just what, that's just the way it has to be that way, right? Because that's being compromised today. It's being compromised in a lot of churches, honestly. There's churches that are not being pillars the way they should be. And it's scary. They're compromising the very Word of God. So, they've got this whole ministry in verses 7 through 9. Paul goes to who? who who's his ministry? Paul's ministry is to who? The circumcised, to the Jews. Uh, I'm sorry. Peter's ministry is to the circumcised, to the Jews, and Paul's is to who? The Gentiles, to the uncircumcised. And they're, two, they're not two different messages. It's the same gospel. We already established that in the Jerusalem Council. But they're two different spheres of ministry. God called Paul to the Gentiles, and he called Peter to the Jews. Two different spheres of ministry. And it just makes me wonder. It just makes me wonder. I, I, I wonder what sphere of ministry the Lord has assigned to each of us. Just wonder, what, what sphere of ministry has the Lord assigned you to? So many people in this church serve, but I believe that the God has a sphere of ministry for every one of us. Are you willing to find out what that is? I hope you are. I hope you wrestle with the Lord or talk to me, or, um, but, but be willing to find out what that sphere of ministry might be for you. Are you willing to serve 
if you were to find out what sphere of ministry God might have for you. I would really encourage you to chat with Rob Johnson, who just started about a month ago with us as he oversees adult ministries and the, the servant ministry with Brian Thompson. So talk to Rob, talk to Brian. Obviously, you can talk to me. We, however, in saying all that about having ministry and things that God puts on our heart, we must be careful not to put pressure on others with the sphere of ministry that God's given us as if they need to be just as passionate about the things we're passionate about. God creates the body of Christ, and he gives some of us passions for certain things in the body of Christ and other people different passions within the body of Christ. All of us have a legitimate ministry. And he talks about that with the spiritual giftings, that we're not to complain that we're not an eye because we're a hand. God assembles all of that. It's a thing of beauty. And lastly, verse 10. Chapter 2, verse 10. They only asked us to remember the poor. Paul writes, the very thing I was eager to do. The Jerusalem church had grown by thousands after Christ ascended and the church had been established. And many had little money. And being Christian created difficulties for employment. And resources were rapidly depleted as Christians began to grow. And it just made me wonder also, is how would you and I and how would the church in general respond if a revival of this magnitude took place today? How do we come alongside our brothers and sisters with our physical resources? Look at 1 John three seventeen. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide? I love that we get to figure that out. What a challenge for the church. And so verse 10 goes from the theological to the practical. God always goes from the theological to the practical. Don't they go hand in hand? It's not just about theology. It's like, yep, great, good to learn. Now what? What do we do with that? There's always something that needs to be done, I believe. God's always at work. How can we join him in the work that he's doing? Good, sound doctrine does not negate or substitute for Christian duty. It should lead us and compel us to Christian duty. As Paul continued to focus on his role as the apostle to the Gentiles, they, the Jewish leaders, did not want him to forget the the believers that were in need in Jerusalem. And it turns out, as he writes in verse 10, he was eager to do that very thing, which would make sense hearts would be in the same place. Paul makes frequent mention in his other letters of his desire to take care of the people in Jerusalem. Here's one example. Romans 15, 25 through 27. He says, now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so and they are indebted to them For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them in material things. Oh, that's that's just wonderful. Paul knew that this would um, continue to unite both Jew and Gentile. And in many of Paul's 13 letters, unity, as you will see if you read his letters, are very important to Paul to continually unite the church. I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite the worship team um, to come up and close us in a song. Let me pray. And if you need prayer after um, our last... Uh, song together. Our prayer team's available down here uh, to my left. It's good to be with you guys. Enjoy the cool weather. Good to see you. Let me pray. Lord, we are just so grateful. So grateful, Lord, that you continue to lead us and guide us through the power of your holy word. Lord, may all of us continue to become fillers, wise, faithful stewards of your word. God, we thank you for this church.
purposes, your purposes, your kingdom, and glorifies your name. It's in Jesus' name that we all say, Amen.